X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Friday, December 11th. Today, back in the day, December 11th, 1946, UNICEF was founded. United Nations Children's Fund started to provide relief to children and mothers who were affected by the fallout of World War II. Since then, UNICEF has supported children and their families, providing immunizations, improving sanitation, promoting education, and providing emergency relief. The organization is funded through individual government and private donations. In the 1980s, the UNICEF helped the UN Commission on Human Rights to draft the Convention on the Rights of the Child, the most widely ratified human rights treaty in history. The United States was the only UN member state not to sign the treaty. Today, back in the day, December 11th, 1972, Apollo 17, the final Apollo mission, landed on the moon. It was launched the week previous. A crew of three humans and five mice launched on December 7th. The mice, nicknamed Fee, Fi, Fo, Fum, and Fooey, purpose of the mission was to collect samples of lunar material to determine the possibility of volcanic activity. The mission broke records at the time, including longest moon landing, longest total moonwalks, largest lunar sample. To be clear, not a ton of competition in those categories, but very stalwart competition. The crew, including the mice, returned to Earth safely on December 19th. Fee, Fi, Fo, Fum, and Fooey all retired to Florida with full benefits. Actually, I have no idea what happened to the mice. Today, back in the day, December 11, 2008, Bernie Madoff was arrested. Madoff was a stockbroker who had ties to prominent politicians and business people. His fraudulent activities were suspected since 1999 by a financial analyst, but the SEC ignored many of the signs. It was an old-fashioned Ponzi scheme, or maybe a new-fashioned Ponzi scheme. They work this way. Customers invest their money, but that new investor's money goes to pay an old investor. So there isn't new investment being created. There's not new wealth being created. Problem with the Ponzi scheme, problem with the pyramid scheme, is you ever run out of new investors, or if too many of the old investors call in their investments, the whole thing topples. When the economic crisis hit, the whole darn thing did topple. Madoff would take profits by convincing additional customers, continue to invest, pocketing extra money. He pleaded guilty to 11 federal felonies and was sentenced to 150 years in federal prison. Today, back in the day, December 11th, 1941, the Housing Authority of Portland was created. In the summer of 1941, Portland and Vancouver transformed into shipbuilding towns in preparation for the impending war effort. Thousands of new workers and their families were unable to find housing. And four days after the Pearl Harbor attack, City Council created the Housing Authority of Portland, then called HAP, the Housing Authority. They managed a new project being developed by industrialist Henry Kaiser. That would become Vanport. We've talked about that and another today back in the day. Also built other housing projects. In just two years, HAP built houses for about 72,000 workers. In 2008... HAP helped provide affordable housing to over 33,000 people. They changed their name to Home Forward in 2011. Today we will have your Quick 6 News headlines and an interview with Rory Elliott of Critical Resistance and Evan Quarles of Lane County Mutual Aid. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. The Red House protests have continued for a third consecutive day. The eviction of the black and indigenous family has driven protesters to build a blockade on North Mississippi. The standoff was one tail of the Black Lives Matter protest that broke out across the city this summer. Mayor Wheeler stated he's not going to tolerate an autonomous zone in Portland, told officers to take any lawful action necessary. Some of the background, the son of the family has declared himself a sovereign citizen. These are the folks who say they don't need to pay taxes and they don't need to pay their mortgage. And according to the Southern Poverty Law Center, 
Sovereign citizens believe that they, not judges, juries, or law enforcement, get to decide which laws to follow and which to ignore. And according to Portland sociologist Randy Blazek, there is a relatively large section of black sovereign citizens. The movement is actually rooted within white supremacy. Starters an anti-government belief and reaction to the 14th Amendment. In 2018, his parents lost their home to foreclosure, and Kenny, who changed his name to William X. Nietzsche, tried to fight the foreclosure in court, filing dozens of appeals, saying he tried to seize the court under Moroccan law. Kenny's argument didn't work, and the family missed a series of payments. The home was foreclosed on in 2018. The Kenny family was ordered out in September. So far, they refused to leave. But just last night, the real estate investor, saying he was overwhelmed by the aggressive demonstrations and the occupation, has now said he's offered to sell it back to the Kinney family for his cost. Roman Ozaruga, forgive me, Roman, if I'm mispronouncing your name, bought the house in a foreclosure sale in 2018 for $260,000. He's offered to sell it back to the Kinney family at the price. He said he's been in touch with the mayor's office. Wheeler says he hopes to negotiate a settlement to end the demonstrations. Ozaruga moved to Portland from Ukraine, and he and his older brother have been buying and selling real estate, including foreclosures. Stay tuned. And now your daily dose of data. On Wednesday, the Oregon Health Authority confirmed 1,243 new coronavirus cases and 30 new coronavirus-related deaths. As of the 9th, 1,110 Oregonians have died from the virus, and currently 642 Oregonians are hospitalized with confirmed or suspected coronavirus. A third COVID-19 vaccine is making its way to Oregon, AstraZeneca's vaccine is close to being cleared under emergency use authorization and will be available in the state after December. The AstraZeneca vaccine is different from Moderna and Pfizer in a few ways. Currently, it is only 70% effective, while Moderna and Pfizer are both 95% effective. For perspective, the flu flu vaccine is generally 50% effective. AstraZeneca is using a viral vector vaccine, which means they will be injecting coronavirus DNA into virus that is harmless to humans. Moderna and Pfizer are using messenger RNA. AstraZeneca will be priced at $4 per dose, about a quarter of its counterpart's dosage price. OHSU's Marcel Curlin says having multiple vaccine options could be critical. Quote, if one of the vaccines is really not suitable for use in people with diabetes, for example, maybe one or two of the others are. It's important to have options. Dr. Anthony Fauci has said that 75% of the American population will need to be vaccinated to achieve herd immunity. Oregon's herd immunity could potentially be achieved faster as infected patients on average spread it to 1.25 people in Oregon. The national average is two new people infected for every one COVID positive person. Quarantining is driving a teacher shortage in Central Oregon, forcing some schools to close. 22 Crook County School District staff, 12 students have been asked to quarantine due to possible exposure to the coronavirus. In Redmond, schools are closing after 91 staffers and students were told to isolate. Crook County School District spokesperson Jason Carr, here's what he had to say. We just saw the writing on the wall. We can't operate schools without teachers. Crook County began in-person instruction for K-3 through students in September and started older grades in October. Both Crook and Deschutes counties are categorized as extreme-risk counties for spread of the virus. A seasonal shelter opened downtown yesterday with a 100-person capacity. The shelter occupies a former Greyhound bus station and prioritizes veterans, seniors, and those with disabilities. Located at 550 Northwest 6th Avenue, the shelter offers access to laundry services, 
showers, three meals a day, and allows pets. Housing navigation services will also be offered. Reservations are required to stay at the shelter and can be made by visiting the Transition Projects Resource Center at 650 Northwest Irving Street or by calling 503-280-4700. Again, that's 503-280-4700. The shelter was announced earlier this year when the owner of the space agreed to a lease which expires in March of 2021. Social distancing will be in place at the shelter. The DEQ, that's the Department of Environmental Quality, and the Oregon Health Authority are investigating elevated levels of dioxin found in Eugene soil. The soil samples were taken near the J.H. Baxter Wood Treatment Facility south of the Roosevelt Boulevard. Four of the eight samples came back positive for dioxins, one near the residential Bethel area. A DEQ spokesperson told the Register Guard, here's the quote, We have found enough dioxins in the soil that it's worth looking into. Doesn't mean there's a public health problem. Does mean we need more evaluation. The site has been home to a wood treatment facility since the 1940s. The DEQ says that spells and operational practices resulted in the soil and water contamination, and the facility has had historically produced air pollutants. Additional samples, both Private property and public right-of-way going to take place in January. And finally, some good news. You might see shooting stars this weekend. The Geminids are returning this weekend during the new moon. The Geminids are considered to be the most reliable meteor shower. They will peak this Sunday to Monday night. Rain is expected in the Willamette Valley, however, so maybe your wish upon a falling star is to ask for the clouds to part. And that's and today's, today's Quick, quick 6 Local Rundown. rundown. X-ray. And we have an interview with Rory Elliott of Critical Resistance and Evan Quarles of Lane County Mutual Aid. They'll be speaking about their group's fundraising efforts for imprisoned firefighters. Here are Andy Lindbergh, Rory Elliott, and Evan Quarles. Imprisoned people have been helping fight wildfires in Oregon since the 1950s, but these firefighters make as little as $9 a day for their work which is physically demanding and dangerous. Now, a statewide coalition of radical groups are trying to make imprisoned firefighters get the thanks they deserve. Joining us now are organizers from two of those groups. We have Rory Elliott from Critical Resistance PDX and Evan Quarles from Lane County Mutual Aid to talk with us about mutual aid, prison abolition, and their efforts to fairly compensate imprisoned firefighters. Thank you for joining us, Rory and Evan. So, Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. This is great. Uh, first off, can you give us a brief introduction of who you are and what your two organizations do? Rory, why uh, yeah. don't you start us off? <laughs> yeah, um, my name is Rory. I use she her pronouns. Um, so Critical Resistance is a national grassroots grassroots um, prison industrial complex abolitionist organization. Um, it was founded around 20 years ago, um, and the Portland chapter was launched around seven years ago. Um, mm-hmm. And we work to connect with folks inside VR letter writing programs um, and work to shift power away from uh, imprisonment and punishment and into the hands of people. Um, so, yeah, trying to uplift self-determined conditions um, and resist the logic of violence and um, criminalization. Hmm. Nice. Evan, what about uh, 
uh, Lane County Mutual Aid. Hi, yeah, so I'm Evan, uh, pronouns are he, him, and uh, Lane County Mutual Aid is a local group in Eugene, Oregon, that started at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic to distribute resources to those in need in our communities, especially the most vulnerable among us. Um, and we started our prison and jail support um, at the beginning of the Lane County uh, jail hunger strike that lasted five or six weeks, um, demanding better conditions in our local jail. And we have since sort of grown throughout the prison system in Oregon uh, to support um, people inside, to support their struggles, and also to connect them to resources that are hard to find, as well as to amplify and boost their voices um, during a time in which to be imprisoned is to risk the possibility of a death sentence. So can you talk to us a little bit about the 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 project that is focusing on the uh, imprisoned firefighters. Tell us about the project and 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 why the your two organizations are are coming together around uh, this project. Yeah, so we were acutely aware this summer of the devastation that you know this record holding wildfire season caused to many communities in Oregon, but we we're also. Um, aware of how just like every other climate disaster be it floods or hurricanes um, people inside of prisons and jails bear the brunt of the disaster and our groups were mobilized um, during the catastrophic evacuations by the Oregon Department of Corrections of four different prisons um, during the wildfire season that led to um, extremely horrible and unlivable conditions outbreaks of COVID Hmm. as well as um, toxic smoke filling facilities, um, violent state repression of protests for better conditions and the inability to contact loved ones and so on. Um, and from there, um, we were inspired by, you know, these radical mutual aid projects from these radical left groups in Oregon that mobilized out of the you know, street resistance to state repression to provide resources to those displaced by the fires and to those unduly affected by the fires. Um, mm-hmm. And we were wondering, you know, uh, we should do this for people inside. Um, and recognizing the extreme negligence and danger that um, prison firefighters are put at risk, as well as, um, you know, the lack of recognition that they get and the um, lack of uh, compensation that they receive for their um you know, extremely unpaid and exploited labor. Um, We embarked on this radical mutual aid project to help compensate them for their labor and provide the recognition that they deserve for saving lives, homes, uh, wildlife, and already devastated forests, Um, as well as to um, provide for the mutual aid projects in prison that by resourcing people inside, we can help them, uh, you know, advocate for themselves and, um, share resources and a shared understanding of why they don't have resources with each other. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're, we're talking about how these, these, uh, your, your push around um, the, well, talk to us a little bit about the general state of, of prison labor in Oregon. I think it was, was important that I think the the national news covered the firefighters in California um, mm-hmm. and uh, kind of cracked the 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 window into uh, the 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 world of prison labor. But can you talk a little bit about 
prison labor in Oregon? Yeah. Um, yeah, as California, as, as many of us know who engage in this work, it's one of the nexus of the prison industrial complex, right? It's the state with the most prisons mm-hmm. um, per capita in the U.S., which is an enormously um, locked up country, right, compared to the rest of the world. So mm-hmm. um, it makes a lot of sense that um, momentum and movement around understanding how prison labor works in that universe um, and how it exploits uh, folks who are inside um it would happen there, <laughs> and, and can, but yeah, I think in that in that term, a lot of like prison labor that happens in other places is, is not discussed as much, especially mm-hmm. firefighting. Um, so yeah, you said earlier in in the beginning that that it's possible for prison um, prisoners to be paid up to nine dollars an hour, but that's generally not true. Um, there's like a point system that gets them to be able to maybe make nine dollars an hour, but ah. at base minimum they make six dollars, uh, or sorry, six dollars a day, nine dollars a day. Um, and three of those dollars are put onto their accounts uh, in the present. And then three of them is moved to when they get out. And we're also right now really shifting our analysis and saying if they get out, right? Because uh, yeah. folks who are inside right now are facing death sentences. Um, Kate Brown refusing to let people out is an act of, of allowing people to die inside um, and like con- continuing that plain neglect. So, um, so yeah, $3 a day actually for what they could get in the here and now. And I don't think a lot of people realize that um, people who are in prison are, are still paying off the fees from their court hearings, right? Um, so people can be in prison for, for like decades and still not pay off. Um, what they have accrued in court. Um, so so were they to get out, the, yeah. to complete their sentence and be released, they may be re-entering society in debt from before they went in to, before they were incarcerated? Oh, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, that's one of the, the, the most secular, violent kind of projects of the um, prison system is to keep people in debt. So in um, in addition to the to this the you know I think people can 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 picture the kind of peril that wildfire fire fighters are in. What what are what are the other forms of of uh, prison labor that that happen in the state of Oregon? There are um, a lot of people are on. Uh, I forget the name of the company. Um, I think it's OCE or something like that um, that is contracted through the through the government. But a lot of people um, are on call centers, um, specifically for government agencies like the DMV. Um, <clears throat> a lot of uh, masks are made and jeans are made and clothes are made. Um, a lot of uh, laundry is done, especially hospital laundry. Mm-hmm. And so people inside are um, cleaning wow. you know, uh, hospital laundry without proper... Um, PPE um, and you know some of this is like health hazards and so on and there were a lot of a lot of the coronavirus or some of the coronavirus outbreaks in prisons could be traced to um, people being forced to work um, while positive or while symptomatic of COVID um, in in the workplaces Um, there are also a lot of uh, forest projects like trail cleaning and campsite maintenance that are done by 
in prison labor. Um, but I think it's important to recognize um, <clears throat> that most people in prisons in Oregon and elsewhere um, don't work. Um, and this sort of like um, is contrary to a lot of our understandings. Um, and, you know, in this analysis, prisons aren't, um, you know, a continuation of forced labor that forced people to work for a profit, but are rather places where people are made idle and warehoused from their communities. Um, a lot of people who are considered surplus labor in the first place. Um, mm-hmm. And so bringing this like analysis of capitalist crises into play, we can see that when there are more crises, when capitalism uh, and the state um, extract too many resources from one place and then move on to another, leaving surplus and residue in its wake. Um, a lot of times, such as um, the coronavirus pandemic, um, prison labor can be used to fill in these crises while maintaining the same uh, relations of class and race inside and outside of prison. So, for instance, mm-hmm. in like New York, we were seeing prisoners um, dig graves for all of the excess deaths caused mm-hmm. by the pandemic, or we're seeing um, morgue maintenance, we're seeing you know, uh, the excess of hospital laundry, we're seeing um, the surplus of um, creation of hand sanitizer. Um, you know, when we ran out of hand sanitizer at the beginning of pandemic, it was because the, we, we found extra hand sanitizer because people in prison were forced to make it um, for very, very, very low wages. So there's this, you know, interesting understanding of prison labor that shows that um, it's not really about making people work for a profit, but rather managing these crises of capitalism, whether it is um, wildfires that stem from, you know, uh, centuries of settler colonial land mismanagement or, um, you know, uh, crises of production caused by the coronavirus outbreak. So the, um, the prison system is, or the, the labor system in prisons is kind of this uh, this uh, shadow cleanup organization for for the sins of, of, uh, of society. Um, that's, you know, the, at least that's, that's what I'm hearing. I'm, I'm being shocked at the the examples that you're giving of the mm-hmm. the the ways that uh, you know uh, incarcerated people are are being used as labor, um, and uh, I, I'm wondering. Um, I understand that that you uh, hold letter writing events. Can you can you talk about making the uh, the a personal connection uh, between uh, prisoners and people on the outside through your letter writing events? Yeah, absolutely. I can back up a tiny bit just to give a little origin of how we launched this project. Um, So, yeah, when looking at the, you know, devastation of the fires and and having our analysis, um, we started thinking about doing this in, in, I think, like early October. (laughs) And the way we got the names, right, because they're not publicly available, is we, um, uh, we... spammed Jennifer Black, who's one of the uh, Oregon Department of Corrections or ODOC's um, representatives. Um, Yeah, and we (laughs) kept spamming her for like weeks and weeks. And um, she finally caved and sent us a spreadsheet of around 275 names. Initially, it was doubled up, so we had to do a lot of cleaning. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, so we're looking at right now, there's... um, Definitely over 275 imprisoned firefighters, but a lot have gotten out since then. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so what we decided we were going to do is we were going to send all of them a letter um, to ask for consent because, you know, we don't want to just like assume that, you know, we know that people inside are exploited and um, how a prison system works is to like warehouse most marginalized people in society but we also don't want to be like hey we know you need money or something like mm-hmm. we're just going to do it so we're asking <laughs> we, we asked for consent and we're trying to build up relationships with folks inside um so we sent out uh, with like around 50, like 60 to 80 volunteers so we've sent out over 500 letters at this point um, nice. so that they are in the back um and like asked for consent to share their stories we got like really 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 um horrific stories stories of um pride in the work right which kind of complicates mm-hmm. our narrative a little bit um <laughs> yeah and which is you know it's true you know yeah um and the narrative still stands but um you know a lot of uh, a joy and tremendous like uh thanks for being reached out to a lot of people were like this is the best letter i've ever received in my entire life i've never no one has like reached out and appreciated me for this labor yeah so um, so uh, we've i'm i'm sorry to 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 interrupt we've got oh, about yeah, okay. 30 seconds left and mm-hmm. i would i'd love for folks to hear about um one how they can to donate to the fundraiser and and a little bit about your your next steps for the imprisoned firefighters project Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you can uh, follow us on Instagram. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'll just go ahead. You can follow <laughs> us on Instagram at uh, Imprisoned Firefighter Funds OR as in Oregon. Um, and you can also find the donation page on bit.ly backslash firefunds. Um, and at this point, we've raised up to $18,000 in only two weeks. That's great. Um, and we're doing raffles uh, of art and political education materials um, on our Instagram. So if you want to throw your $7 in the ring, please do. All right. Well, thank you both. We've been speaking with uh, Rory Elliott from Critical Resistance PDX uh, and uh, Elliot Quarles from Lane County Mutual Aid. Uh, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. Thank you. You got it. Thanks to Rory and Evan for joining the local, and big thanks to the production team. Executive editor Will Romy! Supporting editors and writers Miranda Selinger, Jonathan Covington, Bram, Sophie Mallon. Rhymes with Gallon, Brian Miller, Rhymes with Well Miller, Julia Oppenheimer, she didn't create the bomb, Carly Quadros, Jalisa Ringering, Ryder Sherwood of the Forest, and Sam Smargiasi. Big thanks to co executive producer Emily Gilliland. I'm Jefferson Smith. Thanks also to Regional Journalism Research by the Lund Report, Oregon Health Authority, COVID19.healthdata.org, Oregon Historical Society, Portland Mercury, Portland Tribune, Portland Business Journal, KGW, Dilemmat Week, COIN, Pamplin Media, OPB, KTU, The Oregonian, Statesman Journal, News Partner, Street Roots, and Eater Portland. Thank you for listening to Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for your subscription. Thanks for spreading the word. And thank you, democracy.